Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I am Jerry Thompson. Here with me most of the time is Brian Gottlieb. And you just wrapped up a top 16 finish in the Twitch Rivals. Was it 75K? 75K. Big, big dollars on the line. And even with my, I guess I wouldn't call it mid lane. I'll call it an okay top 16 finish. Still brought home $1,600 for sitting around my house and playing Arena over a couple days. Not too bad. I could get used to this new era of Magic the Gathering. It seems like you have been getting used to it. I mean, you're you're trying to participate in all the fandoms and Twitch rivals and e-leagues that you can. And I guess that's it. You know, just like the old school, like poker grinding days are really just a thing you can't let go of. I, I guess so. I mean, I can't tell you how much better these events go for me than any paper play I have done recently. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Like, obviously getting out of my house and having to travel and things like that all the way into how well I play paper. Also, I think just practice at this point. Obviously, the vast majority of my play is now on these online platforms. But uh, yeah, for whatever reason, continue to have a lot of success in the fandom legends, Twitch rivals of the world. Uh, Comfort matters a lot too. And you don't have to just implode a full day of yours to travel to the event. So right. You know, up and up until the last moments, you still have time to like think about things. I, I I guess I don't know when deck submission was officially, but it was only a little bit before. So that certainly played into it. And with this tournament in particular, really narrow time frame to work with. We got the ban announcement on Monday, and decks had to be in Tuesday morning. So definitely not a lot of turnaround time there. Yeah, a couple people messaged me and asked me for my opinion and what they thought they should play and stuff. And the first thing that my mind went to was that there were going to be a lot of aggro decks. And that was like kind of true, but not really. I think people mostly just tried to redo their cat decks. And that's a pretty good approach, Gerald, as someone who also decided to do that. And that's not for lack of exploring other options. I do think there's other things you can do, but these cat oven setups are really good. And if you look at this tournament, they were there in multiple, multiple forms. And I think prove themselves as very viable throughout. Yeah. What do I have to do to see these deck lists? I have to go to smash.gg and like look through every one single. There was a goldfish link at some point. I will track that down and get that in your hands and you can see them that way. Uh, Yeah. Twitch rivals. First thing on the page. Uh, this is only for the top 32 decks, unfortunately. Okay. I, I don't think you're getting more than that. I don't think all whatever deck lists have been released somewhere. You can probably go into like Smash GG and see them. I think you are going to be limited to top 32 on a more established platform. Yeah. Well, I'm going down this metagame breakdown. I'm just like, I'm looking at a couple of these and I'm just like, oh, I'm kind of curious to see what that's all about. Michael Zimalski, I believe is how you pronounce Mikal, I don't know. They posted the metagame breakdown on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Looking at this right now, I think they did a very nice job getting together all this data and sharing this with everyone. And interesting stuff here. You want to you want to tell people what it reveals about the format? Let's backpedal a little bit. Let's let's talk about bands first and that announcement okay. because sure. we were traveling. We were going to do an emergency live show, but we couldn't make it come together, unfortunately. And I don't know. We, we kind of blew it because we knew that this sort of thing was going to go down like Oko or something was going to get banned and we should have planned to do some sort of announcement show. But 
I, I like my, my late flights, man. I got the 6 p.m. flight out of Roanoke, and that allowed me to sleep in a lot and just kind of go about my day lazily, which I really like. Yeah, meanwhile, I had the 5 a.m. flight out of Roanoke, so we ended up on very different schedules. And basically, you were getting on a plane as I was getting off a plane, and we just couldn't squeeze a show out of ourselves. So we held it for this. Also, there was the competing interest of actually trying to put together a deck to play in this event. I also had to play the Legacy Premier League on Monday, and something had to give. My Legacy Premier League performance was very, very much giving. If you have watched that match, uh, played on very little sleep. And basically I had submitted a deck that had Ren and Six in it. And then that was axed on my flight. And I was just like, just take the Ren and Sixes out and put something else in because I do not have time for this at this point. Really? Uh, so yeah, very, very hectic, hectic three, I guess like five days if you count when I left to go cover the SCG Invitational last Thursday. I stayed up kind of late Sunday night. And one of the things I did was play a Legacy League and I, I think I had broken it. I think Pro- I made probably like, should have asked you, I guess. Yeah. Well, I posted it in the decklist channel, so didn't even have time for the decklist channel this week. It's, it's been that busy. The problem is, is that six hours later, Ren and six got banned anyway. So, okay. And your deck had Ren and six. Oh yeah. No, okay. I was, I was like teamer Delver, but with Elvish reclaimer, Ren and six, Oko, uh, a Cephalid Coliseum because obviously, and I think, the list I went to like or went up to 20 land and I cut some of the soft counters and stuff. So like, I think I had like a really good deck. It was just like thinking about it. Like, what does this deck actually lose to at the moment? And I, I think it was nothing. And then they just banned Ren and six. So bands. probably loses to a lot bands of was the answer. It loses well, to bands. Yeah. yeah. So a little late on that one. Yeah. Uh, sometimes with magic, you know, you spend a bunch of time on something. In this case, it wasn't that much time, but it was like, oh, yeah, like I'm really doing it. I, I didn't have a legacy tournament coming up or anything. It was just like a thought that crossed my mind and I wanted to try it out. I did. And uh, I guess I was right. I don't know. Shrug. It's the danger of these card hoarder accounts that they, they have so graciously hooked us up with and uh, provide us with all of the cards ever that these ideas hit my head and I'm like, well, guess I'm going to play a league right now at whatever time of day I'm struck with the fancy. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, it, it's a good thing too, because those Ren and Sixes tanked. I believe that. I don't know what you're supposed to be doing with them right now. They certainly see almost no modern play. So yeah, not right now. That might, that might change. But anyway, bans happened. Uh, we got rid of Oko. Once upon a time and Veil of Summer, is that accurate? That is correct. Those cards are now gone from standard. Thank you. How do you feel? Thank I feel good. I feel correct good. correct bands? Correct bands, for sure. I mean, these are just some of the most oppressive cards you can actually imagine. And obviously my sample is very small at this point. I haven't played a ton of new standard, but I really, really enjoyed the standard I did play. It feels like it's a completely new format. It feels like a rotation, basically. Those cards were oppressive, unprintable, quite frankly, and I am very glad they are gone at this point. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. What was the reception like for uh, you know people who have been playing Standard or who had played in Twitch Rivals? Is it more of the same? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of positivity. I think people were very happy with the decisions, especially with the online platform there's there's not the same burn that comes with investment in real life so it's it's all upside for strict arena players they're just getting a new format and they're thrilled about it and 
especially considering how just ridiculously inbred and how repetitive the old format was, it felt like a real breath of fresh air playing this new format. And you see how just strong the diversity of the format was right off the bat. Now, granted, a lot of that will congeal over time as people figure out the targets, what they actually want to beat. But I think there's plenty of moves to make here. And a lot of these decks that you saw represented in Twitch Rivals are very, very good. And they have a chance to be players in this format. Yeah, so Cauldron Familiar, Witches Oven, was a thing that popped up at the last Mythic Championship in Richmond two weeks ago. And since then, there has been widespread adoption. Abe Corgan won the GP with it. It's basically been crushing. And then I think if you add up the numbers for all the various cat oven decks in this tournament, it is by far like the most played archetype. But obviously there are, you know, subtle and not so subtle differences between each of these. It just so happens that like the engine between Cauldron Familiar and Witches Oven is very, very good. It's a silly engine. If you can generate resources for free, it's worth exploring. If if the last six months of magic have taught you nothing else, be wary and be attentive of free resources. Because you think about what's gone from the game now, once upon a time, completely free. Field of the Dead is a free value generating engine. If it does not cost you mana and has the ability to impact the game, you should pay very close attention to it. If it's free, Jerry, it's me. Don't or very it. expensive or double or the amount yes. yeah double the amount of what it should cost it's also you those are the two options uh oko at three mana basically doesn't die because it has such high loyalty and then it creates a bunch of free stuff mm-hmm. so i mean that's kind of another way to look at planeswalkers in general where it's like right. the opportunity cost for oko is so low and getting a steady stream of food it makes all of your gilded gooses and Wicked Wolves and everything that much better. If you want to go on the beatdown, you can. This is just like a one-card beatdown machine against control. And then, you know, there's also the whole, like, neutering their creatures or artifacts, swapping their stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, basically a bunch of free stuff that that continues to get banned. Big shocker. Anyway, uh, Oven Cat, too good? What do you think? Let's not do that, first of all. (laughs) I'm not not even entertaining that discussion. All right, so I... I, I mean, is it the best thing to be doing in the format? I felt like I had among the best decks for this tournament, for for sure. It is so, so powerful. The red cards really do matter. I, I liked a lot of the other takes. I, I lost to Preddy in the top 16 playing Black Red Cat, and I thought his deck was very, very well built. And I've played a few of these online tournaments with Preddy now, very strong player, very good deck builder as well, and very good at deck selection. Props to Preddy, a German streamer, but had a really nice take on a black-red build of the deck that leveraging claim the firstborn. The key, though, Mayhem Devil. And again, it's just adding more free value to the engine. Now you have this way of control controlling opposing battlefields. It comes up over and over in the mirror. It is how you beat these aggressive decks being able to take out their creatures for free, any kind of go wide deck. I basically farmed the black green adventures decks really hard. I felt super favored in that matchup because they just can never keep an innkeeper on the battlefield under any circumstances. It's just not happening. And your value engines go so over the top of them. And of course this tournament was won by Mike Sigrist playing 
Black Green Adventures. I haven't actually looked at his specific build. I'll have to take a peek at that. But in general, I felt very favored in that matchup. I beat Matt Nass in the top 32. And granted, Matt had some pretty horrific mana issues in our games, as well as a, a deep mulligan in game one. I'm still able to make a game of it despite that. But on the whole, it feels like just strategically, you outscale them so hard, so hard with all of your engines coming together and having Mayhem Devil around to clean up in Keeper. That's basically their only way into the game. Yeah, looking at Siggy's list now and has four questing beasts, two rankle, two Vivian, one Nissa, one Garrick, and then just the usual suspects, 25 land. Sideboard has some some high impact cards: Massacre Girl, Shifting Ceratops, Brontodon, Legion's End, Trophy Duress, and a Liliana. So, okay, pretty normal, honestly. Yeah, what was interesting about Matt's list was zero Questing Beast and relying on Rankle as his big threat. Uh, double Liliana, I believe. Yep. And in the sideboard, he had some interesting stuff: playing two copies of Sorcerer's Spyglass, which I thought was likely to be very strong and still maxed on Noxious Grasp. And I have to tell you, I played a lot of green decks in this tournament. And looking at these metagame breakdowns, maybe it doesn't quite support the interpretation that you should still be maxing Noxious Grasp. There's certainly a lot more diversity in the format now. So that was a risky move. But had I done it, I certainly would have benefited from it. Well, there are a lot of green decks, but how good is Noxious Grasp actually? Because you don't have the high value target of Oko and a lot of these decks are not playing for Nissa. So mm-hmm. what are you actually killing with this thing that you care about? Well, against a lot of people, maybe nothing against me and against people in the future. I think you will be killing a lot of core vaults because good Lord is that card way better than I give it credit for. And I think now is the time for Garuk to show up as well, partially based on the decreased numbers of Noxious Grass, but also just giving you a way to go even further over the top in these cat mirrors. Obviously, they get very, very, very bogged down. My theory was you'd be able to leverage Garuk Ultimate and break that synergy somewhat. And I think you can only really do that with a large number of copies because you may not get the emblem on the first go around, but you'll probably leave a wolf behind to be able to cash that in immediately and get an emblem off the bat with the second Garuk, and then all of your Gilded Geese are flying, and all of your stupid Paradise Druids are suddenly lethal, and you're just able to break through really efficiently. So I'm really pushing people towards Garuk right now. It was incredible for me all day long. and did a great job of just ending games. You and I have talked a lot recently about the ability to end games and how I often shy away from that. And I think the big difference between Garuk and Liliana is Garuk will just close games down over the course of a couple turns. And with eight accelerants in the deck the way i built it for gilded goose for paradise druid accelerating into your six drop planeswalker is something that happens quite often and i don't think the payoff for accelerating into a liliana is as good as the payoff for accelerating into a garuk right so do you want to talk about your list for a little bit i can read it off and then you can talk about things that you liked or things that you would change Sure. Hit us up with that. I I will say I did a deck tech over on our YouTube page, so I don't want to rehash everything. People can check that out, but go ahead and read the list and then I'll talk more about my changes from where it was now. Was the deck tech after the tournament was concluded or after day one was concluded? It was before I even started the tournament. Okay. So there's, there are some things I feel differently about now. Right. So if there's anything you want to add or uh, any sort of addendum or whatever, you can fill that in here. So deck list, four Cauldron Familiar, four Gilded Goose, four Paradise Druid, four Mayhem Devil, four Trail of Crumbs, 
four witches oven, two assassins trophy, two Garuk cursed huntsman, three Vraska Golgari queen, and then some fun ofs. One Midnight Reaper, one Wicked Wolf, one Corvold, Fae Cursed King, one Massacre Girl, 25 land, one Castle Lockthwain, 12 Shocklands, no Mountain Sideboard 2, or you want to wait on that for a bit? Yeah, we could wait on that. That'll probably be the thing that's most in flux given expected metagames. So the things I really want to hit hard, Trail of Crumbs is a four of in this deck, and in so many matchups, I when I was drawing up my sideboard plans, I was sure I'd be sideboarding a large number of them out maybe even all of them in some instances. As the tournament went on, I rarely sideboarded out more than one. I think that's the absolute limit you want to cut, and that's only against the most aggressive decks because it is what your deck is based on. It's where all of your value comes from, and I underestimated just how strong this card was going to be. The other card I really underestimated was Corvald. I thought it would only be good at parity or when you were ahead, and I think in those instances it would be really good at closing a game. Every time I drew it, it was absolutely game-breaking because you immediately like draw three cards and have this huge flying threat that can just kill your opponent out of absolutely nowhere. I remember one game where I played a Corvald and the next turn it attacked as an 11-11 or 12-12, something like that, and won the game instantly, um, having drawn me eight cards along the way as well. So I definitely was wrong about how good that card is. I would play at least two copies Think about three. The biggest thing holding me back is that you don't always want to accelerate into Corvald. So having three copies doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Also, the redundant copies not being all that good has to cross your mind. But in general, if you have a Corvald on the battlefield, you are probably winning the game. So I don't know. Maybe there is a version that can just like max this card because it is certainly that powerful. Uh, don't be fooled by its brawl deck status. It's a standard card and a top tier standard card, 100%. Yeah, Yama Killer had three in his list, but only had 23 land and three Trail of Crumbs, so... Gotta go harder. Yeah. Gotta make those land drops. This deck is so mana-hungry. It's crazy to me. People not playing Paradise Druid, too. It's like you have so many homes for your mana between Trail of Crumbs, Gilded Goose, just uh, there's dumps all over the place. Don't cut your lands that low. Play your mana accelerants for sure. Yeah, you, you have enough card advantage, it seems like, between Trail and then especially if you're playing Corvold or Midnight Reaper... Obviously, you have a lot to do with your mana. You have mana sinks in, in Trail of Crumbs. And not playing Paradise Druid strikes me as odd, considering you don't have a whole lot else to do early. It does fix your mana. And I don't know, like, what, what are you planning on doing on turn two? Just like playing a trail and that's it? Not going to be enough, for sure. And you, you need to be able to get ahead on mana. You need to be able to start leveraging those trails all over the place and you can only do so if you're hitting land drops and also accelerating a little bit so don't be tempted i i know i started on 24 lands and i sent the deck list to you and you were just like nope and you were 100 percent right and i was coming to that conclusion as well but yeah don't don't skimp if you have mana and a trail of crumbs you will find action every single time without fail cool uh what about midnight reaper i feel like that card is doing a lot of the same stuff that corvold is but Corvold is good when your opponent is breaking up your Witch's Oven synergies, whereas Midnight Reaper kind of isn't. Is that about it? It it could be cut. I think it was like a holdover from not really understanding the deck to its fullest at this point. For the second Corvold that I would put in the list, I've been telling people cut a Vraska, and I think that's reasonable given the metagame that we saw show up to this tournament. But cutting a Midnight Reaper would also be acceptable. It's, It's very redundant with a lot of cards you already have in your deck. 
Is Vraska just like one of the best main deck cards you could be playing against the mirror though? Because it does break up all the different engines. It is. There's so many different permanents you have to account for. And my inclusion of Assassin's Trophy over Murderous Rider also speaks to that point. I really didn't know what to expect. So I wanted to be able to answer Doom Foretold. I wanted to be able to answer Fires. I wanted to have interaction for these key cards in the mirror like Witch's Oven or Trail of Crumbs, which is often a card you have to target just because the value is so incredible if you let it stay on the battlefield for multiple turns. So I appreciate the flexibility of both Raska and Assassin's Trophy right now. And that is having me lean more towards cutting the Midnight Reaper than the third Vraska, because it was good for me all day. Does Murderous Rider being a permanent for Trail of Crumbs matter all that much? It does. It definitely does. Look, I never I never missed on a Trail of Crumbs. I put a card into my hand every single time. But having that selection and having that out to draw to in some instances will come into play. If it gets to the point where you don't think you have to account for these random things to quite the same degree... Maybe you return to Murderous Rider. I don't think we're there yet, though. I think there's still enough unsettled things in the metagame that you just need to have the flexibility and probably like the slightly worse card right now, but it certainly goes much broader than Murderous Rider. Yeah, I mean, we see at the top of this metagame breakdown, Jeskai Fires, 27 copies, Teamer Reclamation, 22 copies. Those are both decks that have four man enchantments in them that you want to kill. So Vraska doesn't yep. touch it, Murderous Rider doesn't touch it, and... I imagine people played those decks because they kind of go over the top of the small ball cat oven stuff. I think that is the expectation. And I have a feeling the Jeskai Fires matchup was apt to be pretty ugly. I will say, though, I built my deck with both of these decks in mind. Why don't you go ahead and read the sideboard now before I just talk a bunch about it? Four Duress, two Disfigure, two Noxious Grasp, three Thrashing Brontodon, two Wicked Wolf, third copy of Garrick, and a Miser's Lovestruck Beast. Yeah, so the three Brontodon, again, that was a spot I was waffling on between Lovestruck Beast and Brontodon, thinking Lovestruck Beast may be a little bit better against the aggro decks, but ultimately went with three Brontodon because I knew I wanted to account for these problematic enchantments. And then Maxing Duress as well, specifically in contemplation of these two archetypes. I played against neither. I do think both are like among your harder matchups for sure. But if you build in contemplation of them, I think you can get yourself to an okay, if not great place. And also, again, the proactivity of Garouk comes into play in those matchups where Liliana is just never going to kill them. Garouk can get them dead very quickly. Yeah. Did Brontodon hold up against the aggro decks? Like, did you play against Knights with Embercleave? Yeah, so I, I lost... Tonight's with Embercleave, that was my Swiss loss. I went 5-1 in Swiss and then 1-1 in the top 32. And had I drawn a Brontodon at any point in my game three, I easily won the game. So It, it just makes you so safe, right? Because you're pretty yep. good at stabilizing the ground, and then you just need to not get got by Embercleave. I think that Brontodon is just super underrated in that matchup. Yeah, one of the, the basically they just set up Rotting Regisaur, pay five mana for Embercleave. And I didn't have Brontodon or Assassin's Trophy and just got killed by it. But my Mayhem Devil engine had killed everything else they played for the entire game. They were super low on resources. They were just able to put those two cards together and that was enough to find a victory. So had I just drawn the key piece of removal for that particular mode of interaction, the game basically would have been a breeze. Yeah, I believe that. A few cards that are showing up in other people's sideboards, if you want to give some commentary on these, are... Flame Sweep, The Elder Spell, and Cinder Vines. 
Elder Spell basically would have never mattered. I don't see many decks going super wide on Planeswalkers. If Jeskai Fires was using that strategy as opposed to Cavaliers, then you could talk me into it. But you see the difference in representation. 27 copies in day one of Cavaliers, only five copies of Planeswalkers. So not something I'm super interested in there. Flame Sweep. I controlled wide battlefields very effectively through Mayhem Devil. And even you look at my count of Massacre Girl, I think I have many fewer Massacre Girls than a lot of other people did. I just think once you have Mayhem Devil, you have other ways to deal with these setups. And careful play and managing your sacrifice resources will let you manage battlefields. It happened time and time again for me. So I'm not convinced those sweeper effects are as essential as they previously were. Also, again, if we look at this breakdown, so you're talking... 27 Jeskai Fires decks, no use for Flame Sweep. 22 Team of Reclamation decks, no use for Flame Sweep. 21 Rakdos Aggro Cleave. I mean, Flame Sweep is fine there. You're pretty happy to have it. But then you go to Gruel Aggro, you don't want it. You go to Juncat Corvold, you don't want it. Golgari Adventure Planeswalkers probably don't want it there. So I just don't think it covers enough archetypes to really justify the sideboard slots at this moment. Might be good against Adventures, but... Like, like like you're saying, the Mayhem Devil stuff kind of covers you against them. and Yeah, I think you're so... That matchup felt very easy to me, quite frankly. The more questing beasts you have, the better it gets on the Golgari side. But I think you can also account with that with like more noxious grasps and just push it further in your favor. So you outscale them so hard. As long as you don't lose to questing beasts, you really don't have much to fear. Right. And I, I assume that... Flame sweep is just kind of like a hedge against an unknown field because you don't know sure. what people are going to play. You would assume that like some amount of mono red is going to show up and there were 11 copies, but that's still not that many. Yeah, but that's one of the reasons I like the Mayhem Devil setup so much is because I think it gave you game against basically everything. Like it is a persistent damage source that decks just don't account for. Yeah, but it's not really a fair comparison because if you're playing flame sweep in your cat oven deck, it probably means you're already you're right. playing mayhem devil yeah no no that's true i i mean it, this is more talking about my justification for playing jund over something like sure. uh, a golgari cat list which clean mana would have been very nice and a couple of players did play golgari cat i think orange played a golgari cat list i know canister played golgari cat i beat him in the swiss i liked his take on the deck went really hard into feasting troll king but ultimately i was a little bit more impressed with the jund builds tell me about the troll king uh, well, I mean, that's replacing the late game. That's that's me trying to do the Garouk thing Canister was trying to accomplish with Feasting Troll King and just a bunch of Castle Garen Briggs and reliably casting Feasting Troll King and having it be a recursive threat. And now that it's not just always an elk, it is an impressive card for sure. And then you have all the underlying synergies that my deck has below that. Uh, Trail of Crumbs setup still there. You get that massive rush of card advantage when you trade in one of your Troll Kings. So I think you can do a lot of the same stuff you just don't have the ability to deal with small ball type stuff like Edgewall Innkeeper. Right. Yeah, I, I do think that Mayhem Devil is just so explosive and so powerful. I can't really see why you would want to play without it unless like making the excuse for like, oh, if there's a bunch of aggro decks, you don't want a painful mana base. But against aggro, having Mayhem Devil will probably save you a bunch of life, too. Yes, I, I generally agree with that. And it's not like the aggro decks are the calamity decks, you know, where they're just like super suicidal, trying to get you dead as quick as possible. Like they do have more of a top end, you know, we're talking about knights having 
Rotting Regisaur and Embercleave. A lot of the modern red decks have Torbran and Legion Warboss, stuff like that. And you're going to mm-hmm. need to grind against them. Yeah, I think that's true. Do you, do you think you nailed it with your deck choice? I kind of do. And, you know, maybe that sounds a little overconfident, but my losses could have very easily broke the other way. Maybe even in a better player's hands, they just straight up break the other way. I had a weird like misclick issue in game two where I, I seemingly clicked the right thing and something about the timer directed it something else. I may have just like lost the game anyway. That didn't super matter. But I also had a really tough judgment call where I could have played Mayhem Devil on turn two off a of Gilded Goose. And I didn't because opponent already had Witch's Oven. And I didn't want them to just claim the Firstborn and deal with my Mayhem Devil right away. So I held it trying to get more value out of it. And I think I ultimately got punished pretty hard for that in the long run. So it felt like there was a lot of user error. And when I do well in one of these tournaments, I I know my skill set. My technical play is not always going to be the best. So in general, if I'm doing very well, I've given myself a significant edge with my deck choice. Sometimes there's other things going on, but that's where a lot of my edge comes from. So this was a solid result, and I felt like a lot of it had to do with the fact that I just had good setups against everyone, particularly in post-board games. I was really pleased with a lot of my sideboard plans. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I believe that. I, I feel like you are very good at constructing an actual plan for each matchup, whereas, especially for a tournament like this, where people have to build decks on such short notice and get very little time to practice, like they can't necessarily operate on theory, and it's like, all right, I'm going to build a main deck and then throw together a sideboard and just like hope it works out. But yeah, normally, you know, your decks are very well crafted. Yeah. And I think that's like the clearest illustration of that is in the Garouk over Liliana spot, because just on power level, Liliana is a better card, almost certainly, but it's about how you envision those games playing out. And someone over in our discord was asking me about the decision to play a third copy of Garouk kind of under the assumption that you want cards that diversify what you're capable of in post-sideboard games. And I think that's a fair assessment, but a lot of times you just have identified a card is so key to your game plan that it's what you're building towards the entire time. And that's the way I felt about Garouk, and I think it ultimately came true, and I was happy to have that third copy of my sideboard. Well, let's let's break that down real quick, because I think a lot of what that person is saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, I do too. I I, I do think that... Generally, when your deck is capable of doing different things, especially in games that are going to go on a little bit longer, and I I think the standard format has uh, a lot of matchups that are like that, frankly, then getting that versatility is very important. However, look at the main deck. Look at what this deck does. Like You're already doing like Planeswalker stuff. You're doing Trail of Crumb stuff. You have a bunch of card advantage, a bunch of ways to use your mana every turn. You have a bunch of different, large, powerful win conditions. Why do you need to diversify? Like, what could you possibly diversify into that would be better than what your deck is already capable of doing? I think that's a great point. And it's one of the things I love about this deck. And in general, the types of decks I do love are the ones that can account for everything. They play all the game plans, no matter what the situation they... They have outs. They can always play to something. This feels like that deck right now. It definitely speaks to my play style. And it sounds like people who are playing this setup are also really enjoying just the gameplay. It, it leads to really fun, exciting games. And it's a breath, breath of fresh air after struggling through a really, really tough standard format for quite a few months now. 
Well, cat oven itself is kind of annoying, especially when you're playing it online because it's of like course. so many clicks and stuff. It, but yeah, it is for- very finicky. I'd rather do it online than in person, though. Forget that. Like, there's no chance I could manage this deck in person. Eh, maybe. I would just be shortcutting a lot, you know? Sure. Like, I would have untapped oven and a cat, and I would just be like, and a turn drain you for one, you know? Right, but there's there's other, like, really finicky stack interactions that come up all the time, and the stack gets, like, seven or eight interactions deep, and you have to track it all, and stuff like that just doesn't work for me. I know you're much better at it than I am. So playing to my strengths, it's much better for me to play this deck online. Although I will openly admit that my pace has to be glacial for me to think through it all. That's that's just the way my brain works. It always will work that way. And I, I would have problems playing this deck uh, at an appropriate pace in person. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I mean, this deck is effectively like a brawl or commander deck with all the weird interactions and triggers and like how, sure. how, how big you're going. I mean, like Corvold was designed to be a brawl card. Right. But like, was it, I mean, what about it is really all that brawl ish, just the fact that it's big and like has interactions you can build around because the interaction is something you're pretty happy to do in standard. And I don't know. I was, I was so blown away by just how routinely powerful this card was. It changed every single game. I drew it and I did not expect that to happen. I, I've played with it a bit before too, but something about this particular setup just really pushed it to another level. Well, when I originally read the text on this card, I just assumed it cost six for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, it is five. I have good news for you. Yeah, five mana and four, four. Like it's already pretty big when it easy bees, it becomes a five, five. So like this, this thing is very aggressively costed. So I say that it was meant to be a brawl card, but I mean, you know, clearly we're, We're maybe pushing this like a little bit further. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, this card is great. I love this stuff. This is some of the synergy based things that I was building around from day one. I love cat oven and trailer crumbs. I'm this is stuff that I'm like working on in Pioneer, too. And the the big thing that I missed was like the interaction with Massacre Girl and how beneficial that is to a deck like this. Yeah, so it's interesting. I've talked a lot about that card with people and only playing one copy. It's unquestionably super powerful. Like that was the core of the setup at the PT, but also at that PT, your Mayhem Devils were completely invalidated and now they aren't. So I think it covers a lot of the same space at a cheaper mana cost and opens up that top end a little more. So you can do more Core Vault stuff and you can do more Garuk stuff and not get punished for it. Word. Uh, anything else you want to add about the deck, the sideboard, how you build it going forward? Only immediate changes I want to make are plus one Corvald for sure, either over Veraska or Midnight Reaper. I, like I said, I was originally leaning Veraska, but now that we've talked a little bit, I am now leaning towards Midnight Reaper. And the fourth Fabled Passage should certainly be in the deck. The setup of like Mayhem Devil leave a Fabled Passage up is really, really big. It matters a bunch. It saved me a ton of time. I just think it's indispensable, and I made a mistake by only playing three copies. Yeah, Beats. I mean... At that point, do you want the mountain in the deck or no? No. No, I never needed it. I, I mean, maybe the second Corval changes things, but you have eight lands that produce red. You also have four Gilded Geese and four Paradise Druid. And my sample size is still small, so I can't say authoritatively you always have it. But I always had it. So take that for what you will, I guess. Do your plans in post-board games ever involve cutting Paradise Druid? Yes, quite often, actually. It's one of the more prone cuts, but I I was just never punished. I mean, 
I guess that's a bad excuse, right? That's not how we should evaluate things. But these, this is a three drop and a five drop that you're worried about casting. And quite frankly, these aren't the type of cards you necessarily want to run out at that point of the curve. You're not trying to jam this card as soon as possible. So I think that plays into the decision as well to go a little bit more conservative with the mana base. I mean, maybe you could take the Lark on the mountain, but it'll blow up some hands and... I think especially having the mountain in your opener will be really, really devastating to your progression. And I am worried about burying that. Cause like I said, you use all your mana on every turn and you're often casting like black green and green colorless. There's, there's not a huge number of colorless pips in your deck basically. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I just feel like if your post-board plans involve cutting paradise druid and you want to add like a second Corvold then it's more likely that scenarios pop up where you do actually want the mountain because that's true. Yeah. Like if you don't stick a goose and whatever, then it's possible that you want to just cut uh cast Corvold on five as a, a little bit of a beater. And maybe you just don't have that option if you can't passage for it. But uh, yeah, something to consider. I mean, I agree that the way your deck is set up, you don't need it. Like your red is at a minimum. I believe I was the one that told you to cut the mountain. Yeah, we talked about it and came to that conclusion. It was right for this tournament. If you change things, you know, it's a subtle tip, tipping point where all of a sudden you're like, uh-oh, I need this mountain. Maybe second Corvald is that tipping point. Yeah. All right. Uh, you want to just go through the metagame breakdown deck by deck and talk about how much you hate these because they're not playing Cat Oven? Sure, but I actually don't hate a lot of them. And I felt like I had some pretty reasonable options going into this tournament. So uh, yeah, let, let's just do it. Let's talk about everything people played. All right. Jess guy fires Cavaliers. I have some experience with this deck. I think this deck is so clunky and so bad when you do not have fires. Mostly agree. When you do have fires though, it's very good. Did you see Zvi's deck list? I did. Four co- well, I don't even know what the card is called. You know what I'm talking about, though. Four copies of... Sphinx of Foresight. Sphinx of Foresight. So yeah, that's, a lot that's, more setups. That's a newish, newish edition. I think once people started playing with it, they're like, oh, yeah, this should have been in the deck the whole time. And it certainly helps, but I don't think it moves the needle, especially once we're talking about, like, in a world where, like, you know, maybe this deck is popular like clearly people are willing to play it like i am going to be prepared for it i'm going to try and kill fires on site i'm gonna have you know duress and bronzedon stuff like that and then just at that point the deck is non-functional definitely way worse and you need very real sideboard plans for what decks are doing but all that being said i do think this is one of the hardest targeters of the cat oven decks like it goes pretty far over the top of what you're accomplishing in a very short period of time so if you are disrespecting this deck as cat oven you get blown up i mean that's all there is to it and i talked to a lot of other cat oven players who who did get blown up by fires i, I talked with bbd a little bit uh and he said that he lost he went four two playing jun cat and lost twice to fires so i, I would okay. have to look at his specific deck list but he felt the matchup was basically unwinnable huh yeah, I don't know. I, I would just always respect this sort of archetype. Plus, there's a lot of necessity in the format to have disenchants already mm-hmm. because of the mirrors. And yeah, I don't think it costs of, you a lot to respect it, right? And, like, that's the main thing. Yeah, and like Ember Cleave and stuff too. It's like, there's just a lot of reason to play Brontodons and Duresses and stuff like that. And if anything, you would want to just overload on them rather than 
uh, play too few, you know, and you even took it a step further than most people and played Assassin's Trophy over Murderous Rider. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, I, I was very cognizant of these big mana archetypes when I was building my deck. So right now you think that people are not targeting or not able to target fires and maybe to a lesser extent teamer reclamation enough so that these decks are still playable, but that could change. Well, uh, okay. I, I am not sure Teamer Reclamation actually is p- playable. This deck may have some problems. Small sample sizes going on results of this tournament. 22 copies registered for day one. One copy making day two, arguably one of the best players in the world playing it, Seth Manfield. Pretty speedy exit, I believe. Maybe one around before getting dispatched, but still not an impressive performance from Teamer Reclamation. I know a lot of very good players played it. Didn't do all that well. So I didn't have any experience against this deck. I didn't really play against it. I don't know how they're constructing their deck right now. But if you're ready with Brontodons and Duresses, you probably are favored in this matchup. And if you can't go over the top of the cat of index, what are you doing here as Teamer Reclamation? In order to go over the top, their deck basically requires that they resolve Reclamation and stick it for a turn. Correct. And it's it's such a tall order, and they're already not you know doing things like playing Sphinx of Foresight or whatever to try and find it. And mm-hmm. at least the Fires deck can like play some sweepers and like play some big creatures and stuff like right. that. Whereas Teamer Wreck is just floundering the entire time. Yeah, I haven't seen a build of this deck. I've loved thus far, and you you know I want to love this deck. Wilderness Reclamation and I have a long history. It's a card I'm quite fond of. Nothing has impressed me about this list yet. Next deck, Rakdos Agrocleave. Uh, mostly knights, but typically has things like Rotting Regisaur that are very large and can pick up the Embercleave. I think this deck is a fine baseline. The cards are mostly pretty solid, but uh, again, I think that you're sort of starting from a deficit and that if people are actually targeting you, there's not a whole lot you can do. Three copies made their way onto the top 32. I was very cognizant of this deck with my deck building to disfigure in the sideboard was another concession to this deck. Three Brontodon. I think this deck is quite good, but as soon as you respect it, it loses a lot of that edge and it doesn't take a whole lot to respect it. Again, it seems to have a very hard time just dealing with some spot removal. And then you get your Mayhem Devil online and they can never play a creature be- besides Rotting Regisaur for the rest of the game. So it seems a little too all into me. And I think that's what people really like about it. It's almost like a combo deck and you just want to put together Regisaur and your Embercleave in a bunch of spots. And when it does that, it feels unbeatable. It has some really incredible draws. I don't know. I still think this is an acceptable choice, but you really need people to show a little disrespect your way. And for whatever reason, at least in the circles I was talking to, people were getting very hyped about this deck going into the tournament. And I think it got the appropriate level of respect. Yeah, I do too. It, it just feels like if you don't draw Embercleave, your your deck is very on the low end of the power level of where you want to right. be right now. Right. So the, the top three decks that people chose to play are like all in on these artifact or enchantments that without them, they just kind of flounder and don't do a whole lot. Yep. Next up, Gruul Aggro, 17 copies. Uh, not sure what the actual breakdown of Gruul was. I know that Javier played like an adventure version at the MC and went pretty deep. Uh, I know that this was previously an Embercleave deck also, but 
with cards like Domri and Gruel Spellbreaker and stuff like that, like you have more of an average power level. Like the power level of the deck is flatter than the Rakdos deck that is kind of leaning on Embercleave. So Gruel gets to play it, but doesn't have to draw it. Stop. Let's just stop doing this to ourselves. I don't I don't know why people are still playing Gruel Aggro. It keeps happening. I put one copy into day two, and I believe that was an adventure build, much like what Javier played. And they did very well at the PT. They're also incredible magic players. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say about this deck. It has continually underwhelmed both playing with and against it, but people love it and keep picking it up. I, I don't think you should, though. I mean, what's what's the difference between it and and uh, Rakdos? Just like higher mana curve? Yeah, I think less consistency. Like Rakdos will routinely put a bunch of creatures on the board and get their cleave reduced. Gruel does not do that all that well. It plays a more mid-rangey style and then hopes to get a big enough swing from the Ember Cleave. But that leaves it hyper vulnerable to spot removal because I just don't have that many things that can pick up the cleave and run away with the game. So... Again, this has, I guess, an added vulnerability of being super soft to Noxious Grasp as well. Like all your green creatures eating that card is not a particularly good upgrade. And if you really want to just do aggressive cleave stuff, it seems like Rakdos is the way to go. Okay, that's fair. Noxious Grasp is definitely a reason to move away from green. I mean, if if it's like a close decision between Rakdos and Gruul and you know, say Rakdos is like a, a slight favorite for like the things that you notice, then certainly the uh, existence of Noxious Grass pushes Gruel even further down and makes it like not really a contest. Right. Okay, I'm on board with that. Uh, next up, Cat Corvold. We have 14 copies. Uh, I, I think this deck's really good. I think so too. Three of us converting to day two. So, you know, pretty above average conversion rate there. And we talked about it a bunch. Nothing really else to say. Word. Uh, Golgari Adventure Planeswalkers. This was also separated from Golgari Adventure The Great Henge. Uh, So 14 copies of Planeswalkers, 9 copies of Henge. What do you think? No Henge on day two, as far as I can tell. Several copies of Planeswalkers, though. Uh, Looks like four copies of Golgari Adventure Planeswalkers. I think this deck is strong. Obviously, it didn't lose anything. And you and I were pretty high on this archetype previously. Also, again, a noxious grasp issue. But if those are trending down, you can talk yourself into taking advantage of this situation. I am probably a little biased against this deck right now because I think in particular, it struggles against the Jund cat setups. And it may not have the same struggles against Rakdos cat or you know any other variety of cat you may see. But particularly against my deck, it felt very far favored. I won a pretty easy match to lock up my day two appearance. No disrespect to my opponent. They played fine. It just my cards lined up very well against theirs. And as I said, Matt Nass with a lot of mana issues in our top 32 match, but mostly cruised. And it just seems like you go bigger than them in the late game. You mitigate all their value engines very well with your Mayhem Devils and I guess that means they're beating up on everything else in the format. And I buy that because I was a believer in this deck for a long time. Questing Beast still an incredible card. Playing four copies of that is really nice for this deck. Um, although Matt Nass played zero copies. So that's something to consider as well. Uh, on the whole, this deck's solid. Fine choice for any tournament you have coming up. Yeah, for the most part, you can just get the same matchup spread with the Jun decks, right? 
I think so. And then you're kind of favored in the quasi mirror if you're calling this a mirror. So, right. We'll have to see how that evolves as time goes on. That's what it seems like to me. I mean, the adventure deck with the innkeeper and order of midnight and stuff like that, it seems like they should be pretty well set up to play a longer game, but Mm -hmm. the cat oven devil setups just completely destroy whatever they're trying to do. And then uh, the decks at the top, uh, at least of the metagame breakdown, like Jeskai Fires and Team Erect, just also go over the top of Golgari. And then in the meantime, they're trying to like beat down with Questing Beasts. So it's like you're kind of like a bad beatdown deck and you're a bad grindy deck. And it just feels like, you know, Junkat can do beatdowny stuff. And you also have like this fireball combo finish with Mayhem Devil, Corvold type of stuff. So, right. Yeah, uh, the the Jun deck seems great. Golgari just seems like cards are kind of weak and is a little conflicted on what it wants to be doing and stuff like that. I do think that its matchup spread is probably decent, but you can probably be doing better stuff. Okay. Next up, Rakdos Cat. This is kind of like beatdown-y version of the Jun stuff. No Trail of Crumbs. I would imagine a lot of these players were playing something similar to the deck that Emma top-aided uh, her PTQ with, with uh, Knight of the Ebon Legion and just, you know, 12 one drops trying to be an aggro deck first and a synergy deck second. So I, I don't think that Preddy was playing Knight of the Ebon Legion. I'm I'm fairly confident he was not. No. I, I thought his setup was quite good, actually. And basically the differentiating point between he and I was just the four Midnight Reaper and then having Priest. And basically, if Priest ever got online and the deck started humming, this was a configuration that felt like it was pushing things really hard. Four Claim the Firstborn did an excellent job blowing up mirrors. He, in our deciding game three, which was super, super close, came down to the last couple turns. Uh, He claimed the Firstborn, my Mayhem Devil, and just blew me up from a fairly significant life total. And that play pattern seems really good right now if cat's going to be a thing i don't know which side is actually favored in the cat mirror jund versus black red i beat it once in the swiss rounds and lost to it here in the top 16 but i was impressed by the way Preddy's deck comes together and just the card advantage of midnight reaper was so so good for him it's not something you can really interact with in a meaningful way as the jund deck at least as i have it set up right now so I might have to go back to the drawing board and think about like if that's the card we actually have to account for when playing out this mirror. Yeah, looking at uh, Bolivo's top 32 list also, he did not have Knight of the Ebon Legion either. So pretty more so doing like the Antonino De Rosa thing where you like go up to Cavalier of Night and got Eternal Bantu, 25 land. Uh, Bolivo just had Rankle instead. Okay. And I think they both had pretty similar sideboards with like Duress, Dreadhorde Butcher, a couple Ember Shield Breakers. Bolivo even had Rotting Regisaur for the Teamer matchup. So yeah, okay, maybe maybe a little bit different than than what I was thinking. They both have Angrass Rampage too, right? Which I could take or leave, but yeah, if if this deck is popular, I could see wanting to move back to Wicked Wolf in the main deck for for Jun Cats. Yeah, and that was what my post-board plan was, and it was fine-ish, but not... Basically, if they ever had a Midnight Reaper stick on the battlefield, they were able to leverage that card advantage so, so hard, it was very difficult to come back from. Yeah, I could see that. Okay, so jury's out on this. Uh, I 
feel like this deck has to take a beatdown stance against like you know Jeskai Fires and Team or Wreck, and because you have a bunch of small creatures, you're kind of running into like Clarion and Flame Sweep and stuff like that. And oh, once yeah. once they start doing their thing, you can set up uh, some some lethal combinations with like Mayhem Devil and stuff. But it's it's difficult when you don't have any traction, right? If they're able to keep your board clear, it's super tough. But maybe the Dreadhorde Butchers out of the sideboard uh, get to give you enough against those strats where you know at least you have a plan uh, i i would posit on the whole that this setup is much worse against the big decks of the format than something like john cat is yeah basically what i was getting at yep like you have duress and a clock but you're walking into their sweepers and you can't remove their enchantments sure uh next one mono red 11 copies aaron barich Six owed day one. I don't remember specifics of her list, but it looked really good. I remember thinking that when I saw it. Yeah, she was basically the only person to find success playing mono red. Only one to advance the top thirty-two, and I believe lost to John Cat uh, in the hands of Yama Killer in the round of thirty-two. Oh, never mind, never mind. There's Guillaume Matignon as well on mono red, but Guillaume also lost in the round of thirty-two. Who did Aaron play? Siggy. So we know that Siggy won the entire tournament. So Aaron lost to Golgari Adventures in the round of 32. I don't know what to take away from this deck. This is better left for someone else who understands the philosophy of fire better than I do. I'll just shut my mouth. If you care about finding a good aggro list, I would just listen to what Aaron has to say. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think that's generally a fine place to be. Worth noting that Guillaume's list has four Legion War Boss and two Embercleave, not a lot of burn spells. Okay. Four Experimental Frenzy. So his, his list is pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know if that is necessarily better or anything, but uh, you should also look at Guillaume's list, but ultimately defer to what Aaron has to say. Yeah. So Guillaume seems like he's getting reinvested in magic. Of course, it feels like Guillaume is from another generation, which is weird to say because it's not even that long ago. Former runner-up to the Player of the Year race had an absolutely dominant season going back in the early 2010s. Uh, so no slouch there either. Yeah, Guillaume's great. You just don't really see him like playing mono red. You know, you don't picture him as a mono red mage. But I mean, I don't. I don't really picture him as any style of mage. Quite frankly, I think I've known him to pick up basically anything that he is enthralled with at the moment. So him looking towards mono red might say a lot in and of itself. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Eight copies, Esper Dance. What do you think, buddy? It was close. I was close to playing Esper Dance, and theoretically, I still like the deck, but it never wins anything. So, I mean, I, I can't advocate for it forever if it's never going to actually take down a tournament, and there's zero copies in the top 32. I do know that the Czechs brought a new version of Dance. I think it was just black-white, and also Emma and Autumn played Abzan Dance. So maybe there's still moves to make with dance, but uh, they weren't in this top 32 whatsoever. No dance variants here. Was was there dance in Emma's deck? I thought I it was believe- just... Oh, I'm sorry. Doom foretold. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are correct. I, I've, I've melded those two cards together in my head at this point, so you'll have to forgive me. Um, right. And I think that's the same with the checks, actually. They are also just black-white, so obviously do not have dance. I would have to double check that. But there's still doom foretold strategies floating around was my point. They continue to not win anything, though. Word. Uh, yeah, Emma's list was interesting in that she had four copies of doom foretold, which is in theory good at 
picking off like trail of crumbs and stuff uh, right. in reality could end up a little bit awkward just against cauldron familiar in general. Yep. But Kaya is a very good card at picking off like ovens or cats. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if we see more of that card hanging around the format. Yeah. So in Esper dance, I think that, you know, playing two copies of that, maybe sideboarding more copies could be a way to go. Yeah. I'm with you. Also eight copies, Azorius control. Ew. Yeah. I, I also feel ew about this. And you know, I want to love this deck. And you know, I played it as soon as I saw it, but I do not get the appeal. You don't beat anything. You have no good matchups. Cool. Simic Flash, eight copies. Is this deck, like, if you load this deck up with counter spells, is it good against the Cat Oven decks? I don't know. I don't know. I never played against it. Why would it be? I guess that's the question I want to ask you because it seems like you can get below them pretty easily. Yeah, I think I think your curve is pretty low and it's like slipping a, a trail of crumbs or even just a witch's oven into play seems like it could be very, very bad for them. And then right. almost all of your cards are like must counters, you know, like you have to counter like Corvold or mm-hmm. Mayhem Devil, Midnight Reaper if you're playing that. And it seems kind of tough for them. But I do feel like it is the sort of deck that could just, you know, tempo you out, maybe counter like your first two spells and like unsummon a thing, brazen borrower thing, whatever. Yeah, Simic Flash has always felt to me like the old, old versions of Rug Delver and Legacy, where if your opponent does anything, you lose the game. Like if they ever put something on the battlefield, you can't win anymore. Right. And I've often had the same experience with Simic Flash, except their cards are all way worse at keeping your opponents off the battlefield. The bane of Simic Flash is a deck that can play two spells in a turn, and the cat decks all do that. So I'm not sold on this. I think it probably punishes the big stuff really well. Like you probably punish Jeskai Fires and Team Reclamation really hard, which if you look at this tournament, great place to be. And you can see why Simic Flash was able to put a copy into the top 32 uh, long term, not sold on this deck. Yeah. I agree with you. Calcano was the one uh, who day twoed with it and three copies of Nissa in the main deck, which is a little bit different than what we've been seeing. But hmm, interesting. Seems, seems like a cool addition. Yeah. And then seven copies of Golgari Cat. Uh, I kind of talked about this. I feel like the red splash is pretty necessary. Yeah, the deck seemed strong, but uh, I think maybe just a little bit worse than the versions, including red. Esper Control. Meh, you gotta you gotta win games in this format. You really do. Like, th- look at how powerful some of these mid to late games are. Everyone can punish you if you try and go too long. If if I'm telling you to win games, you should you should listen to what I'm saying. Win games. Yeah, Kaya Doom foretold might be able to do something, but it does seem like it would be so difficult to just get like a stranglehold on the game. You know, I agree. You're going to like do some things, accumulate some value, and then they're just going to like cat oven mayhem devil down your Liliana or whatever your big finisher is and mm-hmm. probably outdraw you a trail of crumbs too because green gets <laughs> right. the best card advantage. Uh, so six copies of Esper Control, five copies of Jeskai Fires Planeswalkers. I actually like this better than the Cavaliers deck. Yeah, you and me both. I was very close to registering this for the tournament. One copy made the top 32. I, I don't know that there's a ton to take away from this, but it seems like this deck is promising. It does have the capability to actually end games, which I really appreciate about it. I don't know. I mean, where do you view the weakness for Jeskai Fires? For me, it was always just 
duress or counter magic were the big problematic cards. I don't know that anyone else went as hard on duress as I did in this tournament, like the full four copies. I was trying to set myself up well against this deck with my sideboard configuration. I mean, I guess you're as vulnerable to the same stuff as the Jeskai Fires decks are, the, the Cavalier version. So you're not really getting any new strategic angle. It's just a question of how good are these Planeswalkers right now. Yeah, the, the angle is that you are a functional deck even when you don't have fires. And I'm using functional pretty loosely here because mm-hmm. you know, you're know you not really doing anything on turn two. And then you're just playing like some mediocre stuff on like turns three and four. Uh, So you kind of really do need fires to get going, but you still get to play magic in the meantime if you don't have it, which is the appeal to me. But I don't even think that you can necessarily do that. I think that you just kind of have to let go for broke if if that's your plan is to like stick fires and do something busted with it. And that's how you go over the top of people. I think you just need to stick by that and try and do whatever it is that you're trying to do. You know, can I tell you what broke me in regards to this deck? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm playing it. And I'm playing against Cat Oven, and I have my stuff going. I have some Planeswalker in play, and I've protected a Fires, and everything's rolling, and I have Fae of Wishes in my hand, six lands on the battlefield, and I cash in that Fae of Wishes. I go get uh, Casualties of War. I destroy a Trail of Crumbs, an Oven, a Vraska, a random creature, a random land, and next turn my opponent plays another trail of crumbs easily out card advantages me and just buries me into the ground so if you can hit a max value casualties of war against the deck you're targeting and still get dramatically outscaled i think that's problematic and it just speaks to what these trail of crumbs decks are capable of doing they can out card advantage you very very hard yeah you you gotta try and kill them that's it Mm mm-hmm uh, four copies of Black Green Adventures with Clover, Is It Flash, Esper Dreadhorde, and then a bunch of decks with three copies and fewer. Uh, is there anything here that stands out to you? It is possible that Is It Flash is a better version of Simic Flash and just needs more people to pick it up, but that still may not be enough for it to be at all relevant in the metagame. I do, again, like the way it's able to uh, find some reach in the form of Bone Crusher Giant and Ionize. It feels like they often can put you in a damned if you do damned if you don't scenario, and they can actually beat you if you put something onto the battlefield, which seems like a nice place to be. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I'm still not entirely sold on those sorts of decks as a whole, and my experience with Is It Flash was not very good, so I don't know. Just just felt very awkward. You're like this kind of tempo-y burn deck that... I guess at the time was like sideboarding into a bigger deck and like none of the stuff really worked out all that well. Yeah, the big plans never interested me. You need to be able to find damage. And I guess there's also a flaw with Brazen Borrower. Like one toughness is very vulnerable right now. And leaning into that on your Merfolk as well as Brazen Borrower is a little problematic. It scares me. Yeah. Uh, Two copies of Bant with... Mass Manipulation, Oketra, and Karn. And I like some of that stuff. I don't like all of it necessarily, but like Karn is definitely interesting in that it shuts down Oven Mm -hmm. and you can't sacrifice your foods to themselves, at least, to trigger Trail of Crumbs. So like Karn could be a card that is worth investigating. I agree. And I actually think there's some room maybe in the food decks as just a way to attack the mirror pretty successfully. 
I would have to think very carefully about what other things I can pull from my sideboard with a Karn. There doesn't seem like a whole lot. And I don't think you can just play it as a four mana static ability. That's pretty problematic. So going to have to do a deep search and figure out if we can find some key artifacts for the metagame based on what I was doing previously in the format. I can't think of any. So maybe this is a idea whose time has not come yet. But in the future, as we get more meaningful artifacts, we could go back to it. Well, if you wanted a five mana witch's oven, you could do that. You could just tutor for oven. Okay. There's also Sorcerer's Spyglass, Bolus's Citadel. I think I think playing less than four copies in your main deck is probably worse than being able to go get five mana oven. I I agree. I'm just saying, and I think that if Karn catches on at some point, people are definitely going to do it. I don't think it's right, but it is what yeah. it is. Yeah, we'll have to see what people do with that card. We know Karn is super powerful. Uh, it just doesn't have the same type of package support in standard yet. Things can always change. Yeah, and then if, if you're white, you can get Glass Casket. But yeah, that's like, cool too. Yeah, Bolus of Citadel is interesting because it, it's certainly a card that the Cat Oven decks could play, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, uh, Citadel's exciting, actually. And then, I don't know, if you want to fetch up a Golos, play like a five-color mana base and do rad stuff, certainly an option. Pass. I think my time with Golos is done. Uh, I don't think it is, because we have to finish Brawl for All. Uh, that is true. I guess I have to be beaten by Golos at some point in the future. Although I've lost probably my best commander. I don't know how we deal with that long term. We'll have to figure that one out. Uh, you can build like a Corvold deck if you want. I think that's a, a fair replacement. Do I already have Corvold? I don't know. Maybe. It's possible I do. I'm honestly not sure. I built my decks already, man. I'm just waiting for you, so. I've been busy, Jerry. We'll get back to it. Don't worry. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. We are both pretty big fans of Jund Cat going forward. And if you have a PTQ this weekend or, I don't know, Premier Series Qualifier, that's what they're calling them at SCG Con. I don't know if those are different than what else is going on. Mysteries. But yeah, if you if you have some sort of qualifying tournament this weekend, that is probably what I would recommend playing. It seems like it's very solid against everything. And if you have any reads on your local metagame and can adjust either your main deck or sideboard accordingly, I think you're a huge favorite. I agree. It's a great choice. I was very pleased with the deck. Basically from game one, play it, enjoy it. I, I really like it. Yeah, so every week on the podcast, we solicit the fine folks over in our Discord for their burning questions, and we pick a question each week that we like, and we answer it on the podcast, and the recipient gets an Arena deckless enamel pin. And for this week and next, we actually have a sponsor for this segment. So uh, Inked Gaming is a company based out of Oregon, and I know the owner from a few years ago when I played against him in an open actually and became friends with him. Uh, his company had just started up at that point. I, I think that he was just printing playmats in his garage basically. And now they have since expanded, have a bunch of employees. They're doing a bunch of rad stuff. So uh, inkgaming.com is where you want to go. And they have a black Friday sale. From November 22nd, I just want to make sure I get all the details right. November 29th. Oops, November 29th. Yeah, I, I read, I see, I read different things. I was mm-hmm. mixing, so November 29th, 12 a.m. Pacific to basically midnight Pacific, December 2nd. November 29th to December 2nd. 
and you get to use the discount code giving 19 at checkout to get 30% off site-wide almost everything, only excluding gift cards, board games, and small accessories. Yeah, this is a banger of a sale. And look, we only will work with companies whose products we use, products we like. We will never shill for anything less than the best. And I assure you, Ink Gaming, one of the best out there. Their custom playmats are super dope. Anything you want on a playmat, they'll do for you. And then they have a cool thing now where they have a bunch of like pre-rendered playmats and a lot of really cool designs. They do dice bags, all your gaming accessories available at Ink Gaming. Can't recommend them enough. And definitely want to check them out for their Black Friday sale because I I know, no, 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 you will not be able to get this stuff cheaper than that. Definitely the right time to load up on all of your in-gaming merchandise. And when you go there, you tell them you came from Arena Deckless. Let them know we sent you there. We spread the good word of in-gaming. They make it very easy for us by making a high-quality product. But uh, we want them to know that... Our listeners, among the best people in the world, among the best in-gaming purchasers in the world as well. Yeah, and Inked uh, was the company that made our original game play, uh, game podcast playmats. So yep, for, still use mine from time to time. Love it. Yeah, so for the few folks out there who have one of those, it came from Inked. Uh, now, I know that the stitched edges is like a very popular thing and they offer playmats with those too. It's very nice. And they, they also work with like card kingdom and stuff in like their charity arm and ink supplied all of the stuff that they used for the chalice this year, their charity tournament. So also just very, very good people. And I, I like them a lot. Their products are good. I would not shill for them unless their stuff was dope. I promise you. Good shilling, Gerald. I support you 100%. I do my best, man. But like you said, they make it easy. So Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks to Ink Gaming for sponsoring this segment. Go check out that Black Friday sale. I am definitely going to do that because 30% off is a lot. But anyway, our question of the week comes from Gibson Junkie, who says, would love Brian's impressions of Pioneer after commentating this past weekend. Yeah, you did... SCG Con, it was a very long weekend. Also, Gibson Junkie spelled your name wrong. So in order to get your pin, you're going to have to correct that and promise to spell Brian's name correctly from here on out. All right. Yeah. I'm gonna be watching. Write it 100 times on the blackboard before you get your pin. Yep. Uh, so yeah, you did You did SCG Con, which was half Pioneer with Pioneer Top 8, correct? Correct. Correct. So yeah, what did you think, man? Like, were, were the games good? What is the format good? Yeah, just give me give me it all. I will tell you that it had some of the most exciting moments I've seen in matches of Magic in a very, very long time. If you watched the, was it top four or top eight? I actually think it was the top eight match. It was Gruel Aggro versus Hardened Scales. And oh, the, gru- the, the Gruel the Aggro player moles to four on the draw. And you're just like, this person's buried. And opponent goes turn one hardened scales into turn two hardened scales into ballista. And Gruel Aggro player has done basically nothing and then comes back to win the game out of nowhere. It was one of the more incredible matches of Magic I've ever called. So it has those really big, exciting moments. But, and Uh you knew there was a but coming. Uh oh. There is a problem. 
I think, a pretty clear problem with the format. The 8-elf for once upon a time setup means that the early turns of games play out exactly the same all the time. And there is a real pressure point against decks who are not willing to go down that road. Not to say you can't compete. It's just you're starting off on a back foot where your opponent always has three mana on turn two. There are many, many decks that can just build in such a fashion to always have three mana on turn two. There's obviously Mono Green Devotion, which does it all the time. The Lotus Box Hardened Scales deck, which to me looked like by far the best version of Hardened Scales I've seen thus far, leveraged that same setup. Uh, Gruel Aggro is another deck that does that extremely, extremely well. And while the tournament was ultimately taken down by Chris Barone, who loves the podcast, by the way, we got to talk a bunch. I really liked Chris, and he played incredibly all weekend long uh, and won the entire tournament with Mono Black Aggro. I do think the setup of Once Upon a Time into Lano or Elf did a little bit to blunt my excitement for the format. We are long-term going to have to do something about that. Turns out a free cantrip, which gives you basically the most selection of any card ever, might occasionally cause some problems. Uh, And Once Upon a Time has certainly done that. I think there's multiple solutions. If you're convinced Once Upon a Time being in the format is a net positive, then maybe just getting rid of the redundancy of one mana creatures is the way to go. But ultimately, I, I just don't buy this argument anymore. I think Once Upon a Time is a stupid magic card. And I don't want to demean anyone for taking a shot, and it's really hard to make magic cards, but this is one of the dumber ones I've seen in my time around the game, and I don't know what it was supposed to do, and it's. I wish we could just call it a mistake and be done with it, probably in every format. like I guess modern and legacy are powered up enough that it doesn't matter all that much, but anything where having a turn one accelerant is outside the norm, obviously in modern you have like Urza, which also has a turn one accelerant, except it costs zero mana, so this is just kind of par for the course, and legacy does very, very broken things with mana, but if you are in a post-mox age and you're doing something like once upon a time into mana elf. I just don't think that's good for the game. And let's, let's be done with this card sooner rather than later. Word. Yeah. Card card is busted. I do think that mono black is still the best deck in. I agree. Out, shout out to Chris for, you know, crushing the tournament first seed after yeah, the Swiss. Dominated. dominated. First seed after the Swiss lost one game in top eight had, had the best deck and just crushed people, which is always great to see. And I, I got a message the other day from a buddy of mine who doesn't play a ton of magic, but just like out of nostalgia buys a booster pack of every set release. And he opened a once upon a time, he said he read it and he was just like, he he just laughed because he was just like, what are you doing? (laughs) This card is obviously messed up, you know? Yeah. So I I thought that was pretty funny because, you know, obviously he'd seen the, the BR announcement or whatever. So Good times. Uh, but other than that, what do you think about the format? There is a lot of room for creativity that if we cast off that yoke, I think we're going to see more and more crazy archetypes pop up. I think of something like Sam Black and Autumn's List. It feels like they've actually moved the forward the format forward. Agreed. And I think that will continue to happen throughout Pioneer's existence. Sam wrote a nice article about how the only endgame you need is Hour of Promise into Field. Agreed. I think this is going to be an axis of interaction for a long time in this format. And it's neat that those decks are successful. We'll see if people ultimately get sick of field in this format. I think there's a case that it's not great here either. turns out free resource generation kind of busted. So maybe that'll be something we ultimately have to deal with. But 
I know you are working on a bunch of just random ideas with really off the wall stuff. And it feels like a lot of this stuff can come to the limelight if we push off this acceleration of mana, because you can account for turn one thought sees into aggressive creature. And there's plenty of setups you can do to deal with that. And the recursive value of the mono black deck, there's things that will ultimately be able to answer that deck, but you can't account for a deck that just always, always, always has their turn one mana accelerant. It changes the game. They, they are time walking you every single time. And with the London Mulligan and the incentives to use that on both sides. So keep in mind, you will often play down a card into these three mana setups. Yeah, not not going to be good long term for the health of what's going on in Pioneer. Yeah, I will note that the top eight decks, and obviously this was a split format tournament, but the top eight decks had two mono green devotions. And then uh, the rest of the archetypes were one ofs. Uh, green was the most heavily represented color, but... Mm-hmm. Man, that's, Surprise. Yeah, that's just going to be the case, I think, given the most recent years of Magic and everything. But uh, yeah, format does look very diverse, even if it is very aggro-centric. And I think that overall, that's just like a healthy thing. You know, like these aggro decks are very, very powerful and they have colorless tools like Mutavolt and Smuggler's Copter that all of the aggro decks get to benefit from if they want to. And that just kind of makes it so that those are going to be the most prevalent archetypes. But that is not a bad thing. Yeah, I I agree. I want to squeeze I want to squeeze the poles in a little tighter, I think, and then get more room in the middle. So there's the cheap mana accelerants, there's the t- the top end, something like Dylan Huckabone played the Bant Ramp deck, which also went on to win a PTQ. Like bringing in those poles a little bit, I think will yield a net positive. But you're right, the format continues to be diverse despite these play pattern issues. And I think there's a play draw issue as well. That's obviously amplified by the once upon a time setups into mana accelerant. Those are going to be way more devastating on the play than the draw. And you squeeze out all these gameplay issues and you do have a really, really promising core to this format. Why aren't there more cards like timely reinforcements? Not like that one specifically, but it's just like this thing that gets powered up when you are behind. That's a good question. I I do think it would be better if there were cards that only played one way. And that one is like the most pointed example. Can you think of other ones that really are modal depending on whether you're winning the game or losing the game? I, I mean, there's there's stuff like Defense of the Heart or whatever, where it's like, you know, if they sure. have a bunch of creatures, do X. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, just, just things like that where it's like, uh, maybe this is like a two mana two two that becomes a four four if, you know, you're a 10 and they have three creatures or something. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's interesting that this is a less explored design space. I am confident they have a reason, right? Like this seems pretty clearly something you could do if you wanted to. There must be something that they don't like about that style of play that they are trying to avoid. I mean, something like Timely Reinforcements is a net positive to basically every format it has been in. It's never been problematic. It's been nothing short of a good tool, I think. Yeah, it fights the good fight, you know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it does. You can just add that to Pioneer. I'll give you a free pass, Wizards, if you just want to throw that one in. I think that's fine. We should make a video because this this would be like super clickbaity where we just get to list like the 20 cards we want to add to Pioneer or something. Yeah, people would definitely like that one. That's a good video. That's not how we do things around here, Gerald. We we give the important information. We never appeal to the lowest common denominator. We've never done anything clickbaity in our entire history as an organization, right? Uh, I'm going to say yes. 
even though okay. it's definitely not true. But also, we're talking about YouTube, man. YouTube, YouTube just does bad things to me, which it does. <laughs> which I, it does. I guess is the allure, you know, for a lot of people. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that there are nuggets of wisdom underneath it too, where it's like the formats too play draw dependent, and there's a lot of aggro. Timely reinforcements would be net positive. Done. It, you know? It's ultimately whether those discussions are fun to have. And I think you and I talking about that could have a lot of fun and that would translate to our viewers. So as long as you're having fun, whether it's clickbaity or not, as long as you have something to say and you're entertaining people, who cares? I mean, that stuff's people get very bent out of shape about it. I mean, there is a product that you're being sold with basically everything you consume. And if, if you're not aware of that, I hate to break the illusion, but someone's selling you something all the time. All the time. Well, that goes counterpoint to our band discussion, but I think that this would actually be a worthy talking point where like the cards could illustrate fundamental issues or like, sure, you know, matchup dynamics that exist in the format and stuff like that. Like I would try and make it educational. Yeah, it certainly points to the pressure points of the format. Things like the acceleration when you're on the play is is very clearly illustrated by the need for a card like Timely Reinforcements. Yeah. And I also think that this format was probably not planned a lot in advance because sure. we probably would have seen prints like that are more directly pointed at it in the last few sets and we haven't. So I think that will change going forward. And it's like, you know, green doesn't have a lot of good two drops or whatever. Like, you know, that those sort of things will be fleshed out. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I agree with this or not. I mean, like when you think about how, freaking powerful magic cards are right now in a lot of ways. Like how do you point things at pioneer without just tearing things apart when you're already tearing standard apart? Like, I don't really know the answer to that. These cards that have been banned, like these Oko once upon a time veil of summer Oko and once upon a time would probably be among the top five cards in modern horizons pretty easily. Veil of Summer, we wouldn't have rated it that high, although its impact probably would have been deserving of being that high. So yeah. I think power level is just out the window at this point, and some, something's got to be done to reel it in. Because if you ever want to go back to the well with something like Modern Horizons again, what the hell does that set look like? Like, how powerful is that going to be when you think about what Throne of Eldraine looked like? I can't even envision what a Modern Horizons 2 would look like. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just mean like, all of these cards were cards that existed in standard. A lot of the cards that are seeing play now are even just like cards that do exist in standard. Like the best one drops in black aggro, Knight of the Ebon Legion, Gutter Bones. Or I guess like not, not, not Gutter Bones, but like, you know, they're playing Bloodsoak Champion, which is a slightly better Gutter Bones. And some of them right. play one copy of Gutter Bones. Yeah, those, those cards are both legal and standard currently. And I don't think it would take much to get a reasonable green two drop that is appropriate for both standard and uh, pioneer. But no, green doesn't get anything. Let's just leave green out of the next set. I say they just take a set off. They have enough cards. Let them rest for let's, a little while. Let's do torment, but for white. How's that sound? That is a good idea, actually, because there is a color that could use some help. Yeah, it's it's Theros. Uh, Elspeth is back. She's taken over. That's it. What was the breakdown on torment for people who may not be familiar with it? I mean, I think it was only like 30 or 40%, like okay, maybe, maybe 40. But there was a lot of like cross color synergies with like flashback costs and things like that, right? Like deep analysis, blue card with a black flashback cost. I think there was no, a bunch of that stuff. Deep flashback for one you, man, that, that was played in Blue Green Madness. What am I thinking of? I'm thinking of another blue card that has black flashback. Forbidden Alchemy. 
No, there's some, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't Regardless, matter. It, it was a set focused on black. And uh, I, I think white is very much in need of something along those lines. Yeah, it, it does not have much of an identity in Pioneer, which uh, would go a long way to like help stabilize the format too. Sure. Like imagine if you had a white beatdown deck that was like good against all the white, the other beatdown decks, you know, I think that'd be great. Yeah, probably a Thalia away from something like that being reasonable, honestly. Well, you'd still have to be good against the other creature decks, which I don't think it really is. But yeah, well, this is, this is uh, you know, the semantical discussion that is very close to the band discussion where it's like mostly useless. Uh, I do think that there is some stuff to be gleaned from this where it's like play draw matters, white stinks, these things could be improved, etc. Uh, but yeah, we don't have to go into it. Right. We know what we do with useless discussion around these parts. Send it to YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. By the way, like, share, subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's great. I promise. Maybe I can't promise that. But yeah, we should we should probably just end this before it gets worse. Sign us up. That's game. Good luck.